Praise God. There we go. We got another one coming. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, praise the Lord. Praise God. Well, uh, several years ago when I started here pastoring, um, on Mother's Day, I used to preach a Mother's Day message. And all the mothers used to go um, out of the congregation with their heads down because uh, they weren't the mothers that they needed to be. And I, I thought, you know, this isn't very celebratory. I should be preaching a Father's Day message on Mother's Day and vice versa. And then I thought, you know, I'm just going to preach a text, you know, of uh, Scripture that, that we've been going through. And, uh, and so I think it's a blessing to go through Sunday after Sunday uh, through these books that I'm going to begin of the, uh, that happen to be in the Word of God. And we've been looking at this, this miracle that was done, this sign, this wonder that was done by uh, Peter and, and uh, John as they come to the uh, uh, temple to pray. They see this lame man that happens to be again at the gate beautiful, and uh, they, they, they cause him to, to walk again. And it's an incredible miracle when you really think about it, because he never walked in his life. You know, and not only the bones and everything else like that needed to be healed, but, uh, but also the coordination. He had to be able to walk in and of himself. And Peter uses this as an opportunity to, uh, to uh, preach. You know, and, uh, and we love this. You know, we love, again, looking at this uh, text. Now, this sermon is the second of a whole long line of sermons through the book of Acts. And when you look at it, it's, it's a summary. You know, if you read what, what happens to me in the second half of this chapter, it would probably take you two or three minutes so this is a summary. We are given the main points that happen to be again right there, but this is just a summary of a longer sermon he would have preached that day. But the main points are there, and it's so valuable to go through this because I think a lot of times we wonder, you know, what did the early church believe? What did the early church preach? And we can see that they preach the same gospel that we preach. But not only do we see what they preach, but we also understand as we look at them you know, how to give the gospel, how to preach the gospel, you know, how to um, uh, give away our faith. Many times we, we love to, uh, to say, and it's re- really a shame in Christianity when you look again at those who call themselves believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, how few really give away their faith, how few really testify of the saving merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are given that we might know. And we said last time, again, it's training us how to present the gospel. And as you look at all these sermons that happen to be right here, they all have four main points. Now, some of these main points might be more um, explained than others, just depending on the audience that happen to be again right there. But there are four, four main points. That's what the gospel has. And the first point is where we always start, and that is that there is a God. A God that has made everything, a great creator God, who each one of us are absolutely answerable to. And we realize the truth, the second truth, the second truth is about ourselves, that we are sinful creation. In other words, again, God has made us, we're answerable to him, but we have decided to rebel against him. We have decided to go our own way, and we call that sin, right? Our sin is against God's worth, and it does deserve a punishment. You know, and that's where the third point comes in. And the third point is that Jesus Christ came as a merciful redeemer to, to purchase our salvation, to pay that ransom of sin. You know, and we have that third point. And the, first, and the fourth point is basically this. How do I respond? What do I do with this message? And the, and the fourth point is re- repentant faith. In other words, we turn from our sin, but we turn in, in a direction towards the Lord Jesus Christ, and we trust in him alone. 
Now, last time we were together, we went through the first two points. We went through the point that there is a God, and that's where Peter starts. And we said because he's preaching to a Jewish audience that's heavily saturated with the Old Testament scriptures, that he doesn't have to spend too long long on it. They know that there's a God that happened to be again in heaven. But he also knows that there's many Jews from various different corners that happen to be of the Roman Empire coming in. They live in this polytheistic culture. Maybe some of them are thinking this is done through a foreign power, a foreign deity. And what Peter does is ground it right to the God of the Old Testament. And you can see that in verse number 13. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So he connects this miracle to the God of the Old Testament. And think how important that is. Because I, I think we're so often, we're so, you know, when somebody wants to hear about our faith or somebody asks a question about Christianity, we want to get right in there and talk about Jesus crucified. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, does this person know who God is? Do they have any knowledge of who God is? I think more than ever, when you look at our society, we used to live with Christian foundations in our society that happens to be around us, but that's totally gone out the window. And so when a lot of people hear God, they think of God again in a naturalistic sense, right? God is everything, God is everywhere. God is the rocks and the hills and the, and the uh, trees. It's, it's a form of pantheism, isn't it? We are God. Everything is God. So are we talking about the same God? Are we talking about the one and only true God that happens to be in heaven? A lot of people think that he's just an angry deity that happens to be in heaven that wants nothing to do with you. And there's other people who think it's just a figment of your imagination, much like... Um, the uh, science fiction genre that happens to be again out there, where we have all these demigods that happen to be again out there. They're just a figment of your imagination. People need to recognize, beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is this God that each one of us are accountable, this creator God who has made us, who's fashioned us. You know, and where do we go from there? Well, we go to ourselves. You know, if we were to die today, would we come into the presence of God? Would he accept us? Would he open his doors to, to, to a heaven and, and welcome us in? You know, and one of the things that is not too hard to see, and, but I think is the hardest aspect of presenting the gospel, is man is a sinful creation. You know, and we've chosen, every one of us, to go our own way. Now, the reason why I say it's so hard is because we naturally think that we're righteous. You know, we compare ourselves to others. We take, again, the virtues that we have, and we put them on a pedestal. We'll take many of the vices, you know, as insignificant and laying them over here. You know, Paul himself, before he came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, would point to his credentials. There's no one like me. You know, you see that in Philippians chapter 3. Look at who I am. Look at what I have accomplished to happen to begin in life. But once he has shown, again, the righteousness of God through the revelation of God, he realizes all of his righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of this great God. He realizes that he is the chiefest, he is the foremost of all sinners. And that's what people have to recognize. And let me say, that's why he brings up Jesus Christ in this text first. He doesn't bring Jesus Christ to show, again, this is the Redeemer. He brings up Jesus Christ to make it evident, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they are sinners. They thought that they were righteous. You know, and here's God. Here's God the Father, and he raises Jesus. And what does it tell us when he raises Jesus? That Jesus is God's man. You know, he is from God. You murdered an innocent man. 
And he shows them their, 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 their sin. He takes the revelation, what they know about God. They've killed this, easy, this, this innocent man. And all of a sudden, God raises him up. Their guilt is so apparent. And let me just say, this is absolutely amazing. Because we haven't even talked about Jesus Christ, yea, him crucified for us as sinners. And right here, when you look at this sermon, he's talked about God. He's talked about their sin before this holy God and how it is so evident. And he, and he hasn't mentioned the redemption that is available in Jesus Christ. You know, and let me just say this, and I think we all know that, and I hope we all know that. Before we can ever get to the good news, you have to understand how terrible the bad news is. Or the good news just doesn't seem necessary that happens to be in a person's life. If a person does not understand that there's this glorious God that happens to be above, and I have offended his glory, I have trampled his worth underfoot, and I deserve a penalty, what's the use of the gospel? What's the use of the good news? You know, and my hope in going through these various different sermons here is to spur us on, you know, to solidify us in the faith, you know, that we would have a greater security, a greater joy, a greater peace in Jesus Christ, but at the same time challenge us, you know, that we might be gospel heralds, that we might make known the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the third point? And the third point is about Christ, isn't it? That because of what Christ has accomplished, there is a great hope. And let me just read in this text in verses 15 and following. And listen to what it says. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. And you see him and you see and know. And, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. You know, I look at the first century Jews, and it's amazing to look at them, because I think what's so good, because this is real history, right? This is not fiction. This is not make-believe. You know, when you read, you read it, there's not these fantastic things coming out of the passage that, that are just unbelievable. It reads like history. And so if it really happened, I think it's really good for us to put ourselves into the text and ask ourselves, what would it be like to be there? You know, what would have, have gone through our hearts? What would have gone through our, our minds? And I think one of the things that would have gone if we were an unbelieving Jew back then is this. Basically, we've crucified Jesus. We've gotten rid of him, and that's it. He is gone forever. You know, and, and you can imagine that because cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. We have proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is not the Messiah. And I think that really helps us understand rejection today because that's what people want to do. The same thing that first century Jews wanted to do is somehow get rid of Jesus. Because Jesus is always an, uh, an anomaly, isn't he? He's always a problem for those who happen to be again sinners because it confronts us with the need that happens to be in our life. And there's many people, many times, trying to get rid of Jesus. You know, as being a pastor, pe people have questions about God all the time. You know, and I love to answer questions about God. It's like saying, sick him to a dog, right? <laughs> here, he, here he goes. You know, but once in a while, I'll come across somebody, and they'll come up to me, and they'll say something like this, Pastor, can you, can you answer a question for me? And I'll say, yeah, sure. You know, here, here we go, a theological question. Here's somebody being challenged by the Word of God. You know, and they'll ask me a question, and they'll ask me a follow-up question. And about the third or fourth question, I realize what they're trying to do. 
they're really not interested in my answers. What they're trying to do is stump me. And if they can stump me with one of their questions, then they have something to hang their hat on as far as the rejection of Jesus. You know, here it is. I don't want anything to do with him. And here's the amazing thing. Even if I'm able to answer all of their questions, and let me tell you this, I am not a bright fellow, but there's nothing new under the sun. There really isn't. You know, and even if I'm able to answer all of their questions, it's incredible because they still never trust in him. You know, what they're just trying to find out is some way to reject Jesus. And you can imagine, because here in the first century, you can see this rejection of Jesus. And this is what you would think. If they so hate Jesus Christ and want nothing to do with him, well, Jesus Christ must want nothing to do with them. Right? right? Have you ever known that? I'm probably the only sinner here, but when somebody hates me, it's really hard to love them. It's really easy to hate them. And here's the amazing thing about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus draws near to those who hate him. Isn't it amazing? You know, he draws near to sinners that happen to be again like us. He pursues them that happen to be again right there. You, you, you know, and, and, and it just shows how amazing God's grace is. And you can see this in verse number 15 that we just read because he's bringing out their guilt. And he says, and you killed, listen to who you killed, the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And he's establishing their guilt, even as we pointed out last time. But I want, to, I want you to see the name that Peter gives Jesus here. Do you see it? You know, it's what? It is the author of life. That's who Jesus is. You know, and when you look at that word author, what does it mean? It means the originator, right? The creator. You know, if I wrote a book, you know, which I'm not smart enough to do again, but if I wrote a book, if I wrote a book of fiction, you would say that I am the author. I am the originator. I am the creator of this. And so when it says Jesus is the author of life, that's what he means. He means he's the originator. He is the one who gives life. And that's so important because look at verse number 16. He says, in his name, by faith in his name, you know, he's pointing to Jesus Christ, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, Now, just keep that verse up there for a second. And it says, and by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. And the reason why I want you to uh, say that is because this is one of the favorite verses of what is known as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And you know why? Because they will teach many times, if you have it, I have the power, I have the ability to heal any of any disease, whether it happens to be blindness, whether it happens to be lameness, whether it happens to be cancer, whatever it happens to be, You know, if you have shriveled up legs, if you will believe in Jesus, if you will believe beyond a shadow of a doubt and trust in him and trust that I have the power to do it, you will be healed. And the verse that they turn to is this verse that I'm going to begin right here. And they have, again, what is called many times these healing ministries, you know, um, and they, they come out and all, all these, all these people that happen to begin in wheelchair and wheelchairs and they leave absolutely broken, more broken than when they came in because somehow they think that their faith is deficient in Jesus. And they point to this verse. And this verse misses the whole thing. Because, and, we, and we read it this morning as we read the text. When Peter and John come to the gate beautiful, what's the beggar looking for? What's the beggar looking for? Money. 
right? Arms. Have any arms? Right? Right? And he looks intently. And, and to hear, here's Peter. Focus on us. And he thinks, here's these two. They're going to give me something. Right? And he says, we don't have gold and silver. But I have something better to give you. And who's, who's this verse talking about the faith? It's talking about the faith of Peter and John. It's not talking about the faith of the beggar. The beggar doesn't know who these men are. Right? It's talking about the faith that happens to begin in them. So think about it. Here is a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. I have the power. Go ahead and heal. Right? The problem is not with the one who needs healing. The problem is with this person here who claims to have that ability. And this is the whole, the, 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 the whole point of the text. The whole point of the text is this healing is a sign. A sign of what? That Jesus is God's man. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is, here it is, the author of life. The one that you tried to get rid of, he's, he's here. He is the one who healed him. And the one that they tried to get rid of is right there. And rather than being bad news, it's the greatest news that they could ever hear. Jesus is still alive. Jesus is still with them. So look at verses 17 and 18. He says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that is, his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Now, it's amazing to look at that because when he says, I know you did it in ignorance, you know, he's establishing your guilt. You've done this, you've done this, you've done this. You've asked for murder to be set free. You know, you delivered him over to Pilate. You are responsible for crucifying the Lord. And then he says, you did this in ignorance. And it almost seems like he's getting him off the hook, doesn't it? You know, he's excusing the sin that happens to be in their life. It seems like that. And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, we are absolutely culpable for every single sin that we do in our life. So the question happens to be, again, what does he mean there? And he means what he means. You know, there's no way that they can understand the gravity of their crime, right? Ever, ever tell a little white lie? Right? Ever do that? All right. Okay. Guess what? None of us can understand the gravity of that sin against God. Because none of us can understand, comprehend, even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory and the worth of an infinite God that we have sinned against. And think about it. Right? Here's one. He's doing miracles. He's preaching sermons. You know, he's doing all of these things. And there's no way that they can comprehend the significance of what they have done by putting the Lord of glory to shame. Jesus even said this on the cross. You know, as he, pri- as he cried out to his father, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? Right? And even Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. What didn't they do? They didn't understood this. For if they had, if somebody was able in their finite minds to recognize the glory of the Lord, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. And what he's doing, right, right, here's God, here's your guilt, and now I want you to understand that what came to pass was exactly what God wanted to come to pass. Even this great evil, God had a purpose. God had a plan. And that plan included your need. 
You know, and you can see this because he says, again, right there, and I love this piece of scripture. He says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. Now, think of that. What God foretold by the mouth of What's the Old Testament? What God foretold. Right? It's scripture. And when he says foretold, he's speaking about prophecy. And he's speaking about the as we see in our text, the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And here's the, here's the totality of the Old Testament. And it's pointing to this coming, suffering Savior. You can see it so clearly in passages like uh, of, uh, Psalm chapter 22 and Isaiah chapter 53, that this one would come and this one would suffer. Now think about it. Here it is. Here it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We understand there's this God. Now we see our guilt. Now we start seeing something of the significance of the one who has done this miracle. And it seems like it's a message of judgment, doesn't it? Oh, woe is me. I am undone. It seems like a message of judgment. But listen to the last verse that happens to be again in this passage of Scripture. It says, God, having raised up his servant, right? He's talking about raising up Jesus. Sent him first. You see that? Who is he being sent to? He's being sent to who? To Jerusalem, to these people here. To do what? To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Don't you love that? Right? Don't you really love that? You know, when we look there, that's what we're told. Now think about it. How is Jesus Christ, how is Jesus Christ sent to these individuals? And he sent to these individuals, and I want you to hear this, through these witnesses, through these ones who are testifying of him. Right? You see that in the Great Commission right at the beginning of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse number 8, Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here it is. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem first of all. Do you see that? And then it explains to all the world that happens to be around him, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Right? But it was right here. And why did he come? He came for a blessing. Why did he die? He died for a blessing. Why did he rise again? To show beyond a shadow of a doubt the significance of that blessing, that sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Now, I know most of you that happen to be again here this morning, I don't know all of you, and I, and I wonder, do you recognize that there's a holy God that happened to be again in heaven? Do you recognize beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a sinful creation, that you've chosen to rebel against this holy God? Do you recognize that Jesus came and lived that perfect life and died in your stead? Do you recognize that? You know, because I think a lot of times when we get to this point, we say, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I understand it, I understand it, I understand it, I understand it, but here's the question. Do you know what you are to do with that message? Do you understand how you're to respond to that message? Because there's a definite way throughout the word of God that we're called to respond to this message. And you can see that again in verses 19 and following. Let me just read verse number 19 and 20 again here of our passage. And it says this, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ. Now, this is where preaching gets personal. 
When we preach the gospel, when we testify of the saving efficacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are calling for a personal response, right? We're calling for somebody to do something with that in a personal way. In other words, it's not just giving of information, you know, these neat facts, and we're not saved by just hearing these facts about the gospel. Oh, yeah, I know the gospel. Oh, yeah, 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 I know those truths. That's not salvation. There's a specific way we are to respond, and when we respond that way, this is what it's called. It's a theological term called conversion, right? We convert. We used to be going this direction, but now we're going in this direction. We used to trust in this, but now we have converted and we're trusting in this that happens to be over here. It's called conversion. And conversion many times is looked upon as a coin. It's many times illustrated at that. And a coin has how many sides? Somebody helped me out this morning. It has two sides, right? It has this side and this side. It has heads and it has tails, or whatever it happened to be on it, right? And we realize that. It has two sides. When we look at conversion, conversion has two aspects. One happens to be on one side of the coin, repentance, and the other, again, on the other side of the coin, happens to be faith. And both of them are necessary in salvation. And one presupposes the other, even if the other is not mentioned, right? So when we talk about repentance, what are we talking about? And this is the most Common definition of repentance today is a change of mind. And let me tell you, it's more than a change of mind. It is a change of disposition towards sin. You know, with the entire self, with my intellect, with my will, and with my emotions, the totality of who I happen to be, there's a change. I see sin as ugly. I see it as worthy of judgment. I, the things that I used to love uh, before, I no longer love anymore. There's a turning away from them because I realize how demeaning, how degrading, how awful it is in the sight of this glorious God that happens to be again above. And the message again of the gospel is to repent. And then the other side of that coin is faith, and what we call trust in Jesus Christ. And when we say trust in Jesus Christ, because I recognize how horrible and how awful and how degrading sin is and what it deserves for all of eternity, I turn and I trust, I grasp, I lean on, I apprehend Jesus Christ and him crucified. I realize what he has done on the cross is more than enough, and he proved that through the resurrection. You know, and both those sides are absolutely necessary for salvation. So look at how Paul, again, words this right here. Because at the beginning of verse number 19, he says this. This is one side of the coin, isn't it? Repent, therefore, and turn back. Now, what's missing there? What's missing there? What's missing there from the call? Repent and turn back. And it's what? Because with F. It's faith, isn't it? There's no faith there. And remember what I, say, uh, what I said, when you look at these, even if one is named, the other is presupposed, right? And right here in this gospel, again, we have a call, repent, turn from your wicked ways. And what does it presuppose? It presupposes faith in Christ. It's just like the um, Philippian jailer. Right, we have that miracle that happens again in the, in the Philippian uh, jail. All the prisoners are there, and then the jailer brings out both Paul and Barnabas out of that inner prison. You know, and we pick up the reading in Acts chapter sixteen. It says, "Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved?'" And listen to the answer he gives. The answer is again this, and they said, "Believe in the Lord Jesus." and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Now, let me ask you, 
Where's repentance there? Where's repentance? And let me tell you, it's there. Do you know where it's there? He brings them out of prison. Right? And you can imagine the anguish that happened to be again of his soul. If he was ever convinced about Jesus, if he was ever convinced about his need, if he was ever convinced about the cost of his sin, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Right? It's right there. Right? Okay. Believe. Trust in this perfect sacrifice for sin. Right? Here it is. Right? Repent. Let me ask you the question. In Acts chapter 3, when Peter says, repent and turn back, let me ask you this question. What are they repenting of? In the text, what are they repenting of? We could say all sin, and we would be right. But what specifically in the text are they repenting of? Are they turning and turning back to apprehend? And it's this, the rejection of Jesus Christ. You killed him, the Lord of the glory, the author of life. And what does he do? Okay, we said he wasn't the Messiah. We rejected him. We hated him. And now we turn from that wickedness. Now we turn from that sin. And what do we do? We trust that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Right? Here it is, two sides. Right? Two sides. What, what's one side? One side's repentance. And one side's faith. And when I truly repent, this is what I'm doing. I'm truly having faith. When I truly have faith in Jesus Christ, I've truly repented of my sins. Right? And I love the promise. Because the promise that happens to begin right here in our text is that, he, that your sins may be blotted out. Now think about that. Who can forgive sins? And the answer is God alone. Right? Right? Who is sin done primarily against? It is done against God. Right? We realize this. And the only one who can blot out the things that happen to begin on my record is God. And, and, and it's a very picturesque word because in the ancient world, uh, world, if you happen to go to any type of schooling, they would give you a stylus. You know, and the stylus was made of wax. And you'd be given a little um, stylus. And you would take that stylos and you would write, I don't know, maybe your Hebrew, Hebrews, uh, your Hebrew ABCs. You know, and after you were done, you would take a wet rag and you'd put it over the stylus like this. And, and it would clean it. There would be nothing on it. And that's the word blotted out. Right? And here, and here it is. Here's our record. Here's the misdeeds that we have, have done in our life. Here's the misdeeds that we've done today. Here's the misdeeds that we'll do in the future. And this is what's done. When we come to Christ, when we turn from our sin, when we repent of our sin, when we recognize the cause of our sin and recognize what Jesus Christ has done, it's blotted out. Completely blotted out. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, Psalm 103, verse number 12, again, speaks of this. And it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Oh, what an amazing verse. You know, east and west never meet one another. There's an infinite distance that he has created from us, from our sin. Think about it. And Jesus Christ has done it all. You know, Horatio Spaffold, that old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, we love to sing it. But I love this refrain. It says, my sin, 
Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is what? Nailed to the cross. And listen to what it says. And I bear it no more. So what's the response? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. I mean, that's the promise of the gospel, isn't it? That's a promise when we come in repentant faith and don't trust ourselves, but trust Jesus Christ. And I know, you know, I hear of so many people, oh, it's just heart-wrenching. They carry such burdens on their backs. You know, they carry, again, these, these sins, and they just crush, right? My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I own it no more. I bear it no more. And people are bearing these sins. And it could be, again, the type of spouse they were all over their lives. It could be, again, the, uh, the way that they parented their children. And they realized that they had an over strict and unloving hand. And they're bothered by it. It could be some secret sin that nobody knows. But they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God knows. And they carry and they carry and they carry and they carry. And they're burdened and burdened and burdened and burdened. And what have I told you? That there is one who came that could blot out that sin, that could blot out that shame, that could blot out that guilt before of all people, this great God that happens to be in heaven. And it's the author of life. It is Jesus Christ again himself. It is him. And the call is to come in faith to him. So think about it. If you're not in Christ this morning, there's four things that you need to know. You know, this is the gospel. It's not a hard message. There's four truths. There is a God, a creator God. And let me, get, let me say to say that there is no creator God. Just spend five minutes looking at the sky. You know, and then come to say and deny that. You know, just spend five minutes looking at a blade of grass or a tree or something that happens to be again out there. You know, and the second truth that happens to be there, and it's not too hard to find out, my sin, you might try to compare yourselves to, God, uh, to, to, to others, but let me tell you, my sin is done before God. You know, I likened it to this. If righteousness was the ability to, drump, uh, to jump across the Detroit River over, over to Detroit, you know, and I'm more righteous than you, you know, I'm a little, little thin, maybe you're a little more plump, you know, and I can jump farther than you. If I jump a foot farther than you, where's it get me? It gets me in judgment. It gets me in the river. And that's the distance. And all of us have sinned against this great God that happened to be in heaven. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ has come and lived that life that none of us could live and died, taking the punishment in our stead that we might have his perfect justification. And how do we come? We come by repentant faith. We come to him. And I beg you, I implore you to trust in him and trust in him alone this morning. But there's another question that we should ask. And that is, again, Peter takes this opportunity and he intentionally, again, begins to preach Jesus Christ. And a question I want us to ask all of us who claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is, do we take any opportunities? Are we intentional? Do we direct any opportunities, any conversations that we have with those who happen to be outside of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we ever take those opportunities and redirect a conversation towards Jesus Christ? I mean, it's a, it's a truth that, many, that we celebrate every Sunday. 
It's a truth, again, that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I don't think we live in light of. Every single person that I have ever met or will ever meet will one day meet Jesus. And they're either going to meet Jesus here as Lord and Savior, or they are going to meet Jesus as the great God King, the great judge on, on the other side of death. The question is, where are they going to meet him? And the question is, why should we care? And we should care because of verse number 13, because when he puts this, again, that the, uh, this God of all eternity, this God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers, and then he says this, glorified his servant Jesus. This is how Jesus is glorified. How is Jesus glorified? By being trusted. And when he is trusted for the salvation as a sufficient Lord, then people will glorify him for all of eternity now. I know. I live in this world. I live with fear. I live with apprehension. I live, again, with anxiety. And it's so easy to be so fearful and caught up with fear that that we say this, I'm just not going to speak. You know, this is a good opportunity, but I'm just not going to speak. And it's so easy to do that. It's so easy to start making excuses that happen to be again in our mind. I just don't know enough. And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know more than you think. Let me just say it again. You know a lot more than you think. You know there's a God. You know he's creator. You know every person, and it's not very hard to show people that they're sinners. And let me tell you, you celebrate every single Sunday that Jesus paid the debt of sin. And you know you know, that it's by simple, repentant faith in Jesus Christ that people put, go from death to life, to darkness, to eternity with Jesus. You know, and we have all of these, I, I would call, inconsequential conversations with people that can be turned. You know, maybe somebody's talking about the war that happened to be over Ukraine. Maybe they're talking about, again, something super that happened uh, I don't know, the Leafs win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> oh, there's, <laughs> there's no Leaf fans here that are moaning, okay. Uh, or something like that. And we can change the conversation. You know, what, you know what brings joy to my heart? You know what brings me security in these tough economic times? You know what I'm living for? I'm not living for this life, but I'm living for the next life. And can I tell you why I'm living for the next life and why I can be so assured of what I have in the next life? And they're either going to say yes or no. But I have my sneaky suspicion they're going to say yes. And then what do we do? Just give it. And, and what are we doing? We're glorifying this great God. May all of us recognize the privilege, the greatest privilege that we could ever have as far as coming from our lips is uttering this blessed good news of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, what an amazing passage. What an amazing sermon. When we look at these things, Lord, we certainly see what the early church believed about gospel preaching, what the message was. And Lord, so often that can be so encouraging to us because when we look at what the gospel is, the message that we have believed, the message that we have hung eternity on. God, it's amazing to see that it's the same message. 
the same gospel. And Lord, it should encourage our hearts also, Lord, because so often we think we're inept. So often, Lord, we think, Lord, and it is scary when we haven't done it before. So often we think we're ill-equipped. But God, you've given us a knowledge. You've given us a knowledge of who you are. You've given us a knowledge of who we are. You've given us a knowledge of Jesus Christ, our living Savior. And you've given us a knowledge of what is necessary with that message. I just pray, Lord, that we would be bold that we would go in the highways and byways, that we would go, Lord, to the relationships that you've given us in our life and realize that these relationships are given by your sovereignty that we might be gospel heralds. Just be with us and help us, Lord, in all of this, and we will give praise to your name. We thank you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.